welcome to the GoTo Podcast. Each episode covers the brightest and boldest ideas from the world's leading experts in software development. Tune in for practical lessons, compelling theories, and plenty of inspiration. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in-person in cities like Amsterdam, London, Copenhagen, and Chicago, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to GoTo Book Club. Uh, my name is James Lewis, and I'm here today with the author of Data Oriented or Data Data Oriented Programming, uh, Yehun Aten. Um, did I get your name right? Apologies if perfect. I no, the pronunciation. Did, okay, did perfect. Welcome to GoTo Book Club. Happy to be here. Um, so, so we're here to, to to talk about your book. Can you just give us a brief introduction to uh, to to the content? Yeah. So, first of all, it's my first tech book. Maybe it would be the last one, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I did it with uh, Manning, and I quite uh, enjoyed it. It took around uh, two years to write the book, and Manning has this very interesting uh, early adoption program. Mm. So um, I didn't have to wait until the book is totally completed right. in order to get feedback and see how many <laughs> book copy I sold. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm a developer and I'm in the agile world, so I need immediate feedback. I'm not sure I could have waited for two years before getting any hint. So after three chapters were published, mm. it was launched and people bought it and wrote about the book, what they like, what they don't like. And I was able even to change a little bit the table of content based on mm. feedback. So I really, really enjoyed the the process. So it's almost like a lean pub type process where you get very, very right. early feedback. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, maybe you could just give us a brief introduction to yourself as well for the folk out there who. Yeah. So I'm around 40 something year old. I have a family. Mm. I live in Israel. I've been a developer for more than 20 years. I started with, uh, you know, C, C, mm. and then got upgraded to Java. <laughs> and then upgraded to JavaScript, but I started to see the light when I discovered uh, Clojure mm. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me so... I, I, I like to say that there is a before and after Clojure for me. Before uh, 10 years ago, programming was just you know my job, mm. but since then it has become my passion. I really, really enjoy programming. I, I like to, to write uh, insight in blog posts. Programming has become fun again. And what is it you think about the closure programming language in particular that's, that gives you that kind of that real buzz? Yeah, so that's, that was uh, kind of difficult to, to nail it down. And to, 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 so I discussed that with the closure community mm-hmm. after my attempt to write a book about closure with Manning, an, ap- an attempt that didn't uh, <laughs> su- succeed. So there was an early program launch, but mm. you know, a hundred people bought the book overall. Mm. So Manning told me, "Look, we, we like you, but we cannot make business with you. So come up. Can you come with another topic for the book?" And I said, "Okay, um, I cannot convince people to adopt Closure, mm. but I like it so much. That, that there must be something in Closure, like a, a universal paradigm that 
I could share with the, with the community of developer. Mm -hmm. So I spent a couple of weeks and months with, with mining folks and with, with closure developers to, to figure out, is there a way to formulate uh, closure principles in a non-closure uh, way? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what data-oriented programming is about. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, a, it's a way to get all the closure goodies mm -hmm. without having to learn closure syntax. So you, you, when we were talking before, you talked about the principles that you set out. Maybe you could talk through some of those principles. Uh, yes, be... yes. So uh, just before the principles, wh what is the goal of you yeah. know, each program, each program sure. yeah. as a goal? It's not that it's the best thing for everything. Mm. So the goal of data-oriented programming is to reduce complexity of information systems. Um, and complexity, you know, not the O of thing, not the, the computational complexity, yeah, but yeah, more yeah. the system complexity. Mm -hmm. By that, I mean the, the amount of suffering that you experience when you try to understand the system or to add new features to a system. So that's complexity. And my claim is that if you write your code uh, following that outed program principles, then you will reduce the level of complexity. Make sense? No, it does make sense. Yeah. So, so when, we, when we talk about complexity, we often talk about the difference between accidental versus essential complexity. Right. Um, so, are we talking? Are you talking about the same sort of complexity then? Yes. The sort of the stuff around. The, you the know, problem. the essential complexity. If you want to reduce it, you have to to move to another problem. <laughs> but uh, uh, assuming that you are forced to solve the current problem, mm -hmm. you cannot reduce the essential complexity, but you can reduce the amount of accidental complexity that you add to, to your work. Mm. So yeah, we, we deal with accidental complexity. I mean, I, I would, I mean, I, I think maybe some other people would argue as well that, um, that actually some programming languages are better at dealing with certain types of essential complexity right. as well, right? I mean, if you find that with Clojure, that you actually get to solve problems in a slightly different way with Clojure when you... Right. A full, full, full disclaimer here, I have actually written closure code, I'm, I'm not entirely ignorant of, of, of writing closure, so... Um, but yeah, I mean, is, is, is when you write closure, do you find that there are certain problems that fit it more? Yes, so this kind of problem is that what we call the information system. Mm. Uh, for example, you know, a back-end uh, software that takes data from the database, manipulates it a little bit and passes it forward. Or a front-end application with a state mm. that we need to manage. Um, it's not, I don't think it's a good fit that are the problem for writing databases or writing uh, embedded systems or routers or stuff like that, where you need a, a highly competitive, uh, highly computational thing and when performance uh, is the key. Mm. But when you manipulate data here and there and when you, also one important aspect of it is that when your program manipulates data that it doesn't own, mm. when mm -hmm. the owner of the data is another system, mm. for example, the yeah. database is the owner of your data, mm -hmm. and your backend only has to pass data around. Um, if you write a compiler, for example, you, you own the data. You, you know exactly what, what is the structure of your data. Yeah. There is no surprise. So for that kind of problems, I'm not sure that talented programming is a perfect fit. Mm. But for dealing with the real world and surprises of the real world, I think it's a good, it's a good fit. We have a, a sort of old joke in ThoughtWorks, which is, uh, 
you know, 50, not maybe even 90% of our job is taking data from A and moving it to B. Right. Um, uh, and the other 10% is showing it at C, right? I mean, that's, that's exactly. pretty much what most enterprise software yes, developers do. Exactly. Mm. So for that kind of stuff, I think Clojure has been known to be good. Mm. But the problem with Clojure is that it has a reputation of being hard to learn or it's a different mindset. So yeah. it's hard for, let's say, Java developers to move to Clojure. So I hope that with DOP, it will, uh, you will bring, it will bring closure, way of thinking to non-closure uh, developer, and we yeah. have the tools for that. Mm. As we will maybe talk about later, yeah. the key thing in terms of uh, code that we need is the immutable data structures yeah. that were invented by Richie when he developed closure or discovered. But since then, it was in 2009. Since then, they have been ported to any programming language. Mm you know, to Java, Ruby, Python, JavaScript. So we have all the tools for that. We just need uh, to make the leap. I guess to recap a bit, so the goal of the book is to introduce the way of thinking that Clojure developers use, if you like, when they're writing Clojure, to introduce that to a wider audience and to give a wider audience the sort of tools, the right. mental tools to think about problems in a way that... Yes. Uh, and solve problems in a way that, that, that you might solve with a with right. functional programming. Both the mental tools and also the technical tools, mm. so that you can implement. In the book, I use JavaScript as an example, right. yeah. and when it really matters, I, I illustrate how, also how to do it in Java. Mm. Uh, but you know, JavaScript is easy to read by anybody, so I use it more as uh, the, all the code examples in the book work, but it's more like you can read it as pseudocode mm. in order to get a real sense of that it's not only abstract principles, in, it's uh, pragmatic, it's mm. things that you can do tomorrow, tomorrow morning. So it's both the mental tools and the technical tools, mm. and uh, also the motivation. The way I, I, I wrote the book is, um, so I had a problem. When I started to write the book, I was over-enthusiastic. Yeah. I, I thought it was the best thing, the, the material was the yeah. best material in the world, and I wanted to convince, and I was, and you know, when you are too convinced and you want too much to convince, mm. ah, you are not convincing. Mm -hmm. So the, the publisher told me, keep quiet. <laughs> and, and then um, they asked questions. The, 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 the person that worked with me from Manning asked questions, uh, objections. Here you have a problem, here you have a problem, it's, it's not a perfect fit. And then I, I kind of become schizophrenic. So mm. on the one hand, I'm enthusiastic. On the other hand, I have lots of questions. How am I going to manage it? Mm. And I came up with these interesting ideas to give voice mm. to both sides in the book. So, oh, right. okay. And I wrote the book as a story, as a meeting between an old or a five or ten year Java developer mm. that struggle at work. He worked for a consulting uh, company like uh, yours, no? but another, the name is <laughs> Albatros, I think, in the book. And he has a problem to meet deadlines mm. because of complexity. And then he meets uh, Joe, a mm. uh, closure guy, that is very enthusiastic and wants to give him, to reveal all the mental models from closure, but to formulate them in a non-closure way. So the book is the, the story of their meeting. Mm. And, and, not, you know, and the guy is not a yes man, mm. the Java developer, mm. so he asks, many questions, mm. and the closure coach, the DOP coach has to 
refine his uh, insights and mm -hmm. teachings. And it allowed me to manage the two voices uh, inside me to make it, you know, a dialogue. Mm -hmm. That's, that sounds like a really interesting approach. So it's almost like a business, it's almost like what we would call a business fable in some senses. Yes. So I, I think he, Like um, the goal. Like the goal, exactly. Like that sort of structure where you have someone who's sort of taking, taking the individual on a journey towards enlightenment. Yes. And yeah. you know, actually it goes back to Socrates. Mm. Yes, then the like, dialogue. Uh, the yeah, dialogue. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, super interesting. So, um, so, so we've heard a bit, a bit about what, what, what the goal is, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. um, but also, I mean, so you sort of said about the, about some of the tools, the, the sort of mental and the sort of the technical tools and principles and things. So maybe you could talk talk yes. to us a little bit about about those. About so there are basically four principles mm -hmm. that we could summarize as a one meta principle mm -hmm. that. Uh, can be expressed in four words. Right. Treat data as data. So that's data oriented programming. That's okay. very simple. Treat data as data. Treat, uh, I would say data. So I would say data, oh, treat sorry. data as data. No, data is. So treat data I, I, I as data. Of, maybe, <laughs> or treat data as data. Yeah, or, treat, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So treat data as data. Treat data as data. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah so maybe my, you can unpick uh, some of that for us. Yeah, then. sure. So. <laughs> Basically, what, what does it mean to treat data as data or data as data? It means that data is a first-class citizen. Mm. Like in object-oriented programming, objects are, or classes are mm. first-class citizens. In uh, functional programming, functions are first-class citizens. Mm. Uh, in business class, <laughs> rich people are first-class citizens. <laughs> <laughs> so here, data is a first-class citizen. And what does it take? Mm. So it takes four principles. Principle number one, is to separate between code and data. Unlike what OOP teaches mm. or has taught for years, we don't want to encapsulate data and functionality together in objects. We want data to have the right to live on its own. Mm. Mm. And then the cool thing is that the behavior part of the system becomes stateless, stateless functions or stateless methods. Mm. And as you probably know, state is the number one enemy. So we want to, we cannot avoid state, but we want to tame it by putting it, by localize it. So mm. only some slight pieces of our code will, will deal with state, mm. but all the other pieces are stateless. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, it's like a dream for unit tests, for debuggability, for mm. code reuse. So that's principle number one. We separate between code and... And treat data as a first class, as the so first it, Yeah, it's, it's not enough. It's, not, it's a required condition, but it's, mm. it's not enough. Mm. So after we have done that, comes, so that's principle number one, comes the question, how are we going to represent data? Mm. Would, would we use structs, like in uh, C? Mm. Will we use uh, records, like mm. in modern uh, Java? Mm. Will we use uh, dictionaries like in Python? Mm. So the answer that DOP gives is generic. We use generic data structures. Mm. Hash maps, dictionaries, mm. arrays, mm. lists, stuff like that. We don't need anything more mm. to uh, represent our data. We will, principle number four, we'll, we'll deal with the limitation of it. But before the limitation, let's, let's drill down into the advantages of it. Mm. So, first of all, you can create data as you go. Mm. You don't have a ceremony before you create data, mm. right? Like with numbers, when you create a number, 42, and you want to add one, you are not creating a class of 
uh, even numbers or even numbers bigger than 40 or even numbers bigger than 40 and less than 50, right? You just create the number. Mm. You have the right to create it. Mm. And you can manipulate it and you can pass it around. Mm. So it gives you lots of uh, dynamic dynamism and flexibility. Uh, also, you can manipulate 42 with all the operations that are there for you. Mm. Multiplication, addition, logarithm, uh, exponentiation, any complex math function is available to you, no matter if it's part of the language, like the basic one, or it's written with a library. Mm. So the same, if you represent data with generic data structures, you can leverage any piece of functionality that has been written by anybody. Mm. So for example, in, in JavaScript, we have this Lodash library okay. that gives you I don't know, hundreds of data manipulation functions mm. that you don't need to write, you know, group by sort, uh, frequencies, uh, remove key, add key, rename keys, map, reduce, mm. all these things. And you don't have to be a functional programming wizard mm. in order to leverage them. Mm. So it's there for you. You don't have to reinvent the, the wheel for each and every uh, business entity of your mm. system. Mm. That's super interesting, actually, because I mean, in my mind, because I'm a have been a very long, for a very, very long time, super interested in domain-driven design, right? As right. I'm sure you've come across domain-driven mm -hmm. design. And then, you know, you're essentially trying to solve similar problems with domain-driven design, but sort of trying to solve them in very different ways. So, for example, you know, you might argue, one could argue that you know, tiny types would be a, a sort of, the, almost the opposite approach, right? So, rather right. than just treat data as generic, it's a number or it's a, I guess, a string or whatever it is, right? Um, with tiny types, you would try and, um, you would create a type that, that, that encapsulates the... Right, the specifics. Exactly, the specifics of the thing you're trying to describe. Right. I mean, I, I remember back in, you know, years and years ago, oh, back in 2005, five, six. you know, you turn up at a bank or even later, we turn up at a big, big project and you'd see a big code base and it was all hash maps and it was all dictionaries. And, mm. and the problem was it was it was really hard to reason about yes. all these things in amongst all this, you know, all this sort of giant sort of object-oriented sort of, with these giant object-oriented structures. Um, and that's why, you know, sort of, I think back in 20, 2009, I, I, I did a talk with um, Daniel Tihos North on programming in the large, where we talked about you know, one of the things to do is to introduce a domain model, right? Because that that allows you to reason about the things that you're working with. Right. Um, so how do you? I mean, how do you solve that problem in data-oriented yes. programming, where you want to be able to reason about the businessy things that, the, that, right. that your code is doing as well? Yes. So is that's a, a great question. That's the most challenging question, uh, and that's principle number four. Ah, so okay. let, let's, well, let's go to it, and then we come back to principle <laughs> we'll come number back to three. three. Yeah, yeah. Who cares about order? <laughs> So, right, when you have small code, when you write your, when you do homework mm. for uh, university, that's, mm. that's fine. You have a hash map and you, you, you know what the hash map, what, what are the fields, yes. and yeah. uh, you don't have surprises. But when the team grows, when the code base grows, you have a function, um, I don't know, um, amount that receives something called user. Yeah. Maybe it's called user, maybe it will call, it'd be called you. Mm. And it's a hash map. So how do I know what are the fields in this hash map? Mm. If you are lucky, you have a, docu a documentation string that says in this uh, user thing, you have a user ID, you have email address, you have blah, blah, blah. But docu documentation 
sometimes it's not there, and sometimes it's inaccurate. Mm. The code evolved and someone forgot to update the documentation. Yeah. So, and for that, uh, object-oriented programming really shines mm. because you have no mistakes, it's part, you can inspect the, the type and you have auto-completion and you have, so mm. that seems to mm. be mm. a problem. Mm. So we, we want data validation, right? Another problem is that if you don't do data validation and you have mistakes, mm. you will encounter the errors down the stream. Mm. So instead of having the error in the amount function and say, oh, the user is invalid, mm. you will have a full function that says uh, x is not defined. <laughs> what the hell does it come from? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Mm. That's the problem of dynamic languages. Yes. And in fact, uh, quite recently, I would say, uh, over the last five years, there have been development and awareness in the dynamic programming language community that we need something. Mm. We don't want the, 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 the limitation of static types, but we don't want also the far west mm. of the if dynamic type. We want something in the middle, or maybe we want both. Mm. Mm. And there are ways to have, how do you say, it? to eat the, to cut the cake? Both, ha yeah, both have you? your cake and eat it. Yes, so yeah. there is a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the key is to separate between data representation mm. and data validation. Mm. So we want mm -hmm. both, but we don't want them to be entangled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Someone commented on my book that every paradigm or good design principle is about separating things. Mm. So here again, we want both data representation and data validation, but we don't want them entangled. Mm. We want them separate. Uh -huh. And we will decide, we the developers will decide when we want to validate this piece of data. And sometimes we don't want. Mm. Sometimes we have a function that is just a utility function and it could handle various kinds of data mm. because, let me give you an example of that, you could write a function that receives a hash map mm. and receive uh, a list of keys that need to be renamed or removed. So it works with any hash map, yes. not only with users and books. So this function, you want it generic. Mm. You don't want to limit yourself in any way. Mm. On the other hand, you have a function called uh, checkout, mm. and it receives a cart. Mm. And you don't want this function to work with a user. Mm. It, it has to be a cart. Mm. So there are schema languages, like JSON schema, mm. that allows you to express the schema, the expected schema of your data, as data. Mm. And there are libraries that allow you to, to say, here, I have a piece of data, I have a schema, could you please validate for me that the data is conforming to the schema? Mm. And if not, tell me exactly why. Mm. What are the missing fields? What are the invalid fields? And we could use it in uh, areas where it's the only way to go. Mm. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. If you have an HTTP server that receives a request, mm -hmm. you cannot force the user to send you the re valid request. Mm. You have no compiler over the wire, right? <laughs> so. How are, we, are you going to manage that? Here, it's, you have the schema, you have the payload schema, that could be expressed in JSON schema or something mm -hmm. else, and you have the user request, which is a string. Mm. So first, you deserialize the JSON string. If you are able to make it an object, you move forward. If you are not able, you send an error to the user in valid JSON. But then you have a valid uh, map that might or might not conform to your schema. Mm -hmm. So you use these JSON schema libraries and you validate data with the schema 
And if it's not valid, you are able dynamically to send in the response body of the error, hey, to send back the, the, the error that is created by the library. Like, mm -hmm. uh, uh, here I expect a user, it should have a user ID and it should be a number. Here is an email, it's an invalid email. That's super interesting. Because I mean, so how does that work with? So I mean, so uh, full disclosure, you know, I've done a lot of um, sort of integration work over the years, and um, you know, what I'm thinking about here is Postel's law. That's coming into my mind, right? So what? Postel's law. So it's oh, from, yes. from from TCP/IP, and then it's been yeah, adapted be from, be lo be generic in what you receive and be hard in what you yeah, send. That's, that's the yeah. I mentioned it in the book, chapter twelve, I think. Yeah, that's it, and, and it's it's one of these things where you know over the years. When, 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 when I was involved with building systems that were doing things like passing lots of XML or JSON these days, you know, we developed lots of techniques which were to which were to, to only bind to the things that you need in the in the response that you're getting. Right. So, say you get a user and the user has a first name, a last name, a full name. Uh, a first line address, a second line address, a full address. Right. Uh -huh, right. Depending on what you want. You know, you either you either bind to the first name and last name, or you bind to the full name. Right. Um, but you don't you don't expect necessarily everything to be there. Right. Because you don't necessarily need everything. And what that allows you to do is to use patterns like expand contract for you know for interfaces where you say, okay, you know, as long as you only bind to the things you need, I can add right. extra fields in without breaking my consumers. Right. Like. Yes. So does, how, how does, and you how don't have to create work? a new class. No, exactly. Probably yeah, yeah, people yeah. know from the Java you have user, user in database, yeah, user yeah, for yeah, controller yeah, yeah, A, yeah, yeah, user yeah, for controller yeah. B. You have thousands yeah. of classes yeah, yeah. that is just a subset of the field. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 so you have that problem, but then you also have this this thing about how you evolve interfaces between systems, right? right? So yes. how do you, you know, how, how are you able to, are you able to add new fields? You should be able to add new fields to a to a response without breaking, breaking things. You know? Exactly. But, you, but that only works if you only bind to, the, you know, if you're using strict schema validation, yes. that's going to blow up, right? So yeah, right. Does, so what, does once, this, yes, yes. Does this and, make sense? Yeah. yeah, and in JSON schema, there is uh, natively this concept of required or non-required field. Mm -hmm. the, I think that still in Java, the nullability is, uh, is a problem, right? Mm -hmm. if, a, if, if a field could be there or could not be there, you have problems. Mm -hmm. in, in a hash map, Either you have it or you don't have it. Okay. It's not nullable. Mm. In the schema, it could be required or non-required. Mm. So it seems to me that it's, it's the proper mental model to deal with systems that communicate over the wire. I must admit that in terms of tools, mm. we are not there yet. Mm. Meaning, if you have a function that receives a user and you have the JSON schema of the user, your idea will not completely be able to autocomplete mm. the field based on the JSON schema. Mm. Mm -hmm. But we are starting to, to get there. Mm. For example, in the VS Code, some configuration file uh, for extensions or for VS Code itse yeah. itself has a JSON schema defined for it mm. that yeah. is somewhere uh, on the internet. And VS Code is smart enough to give you, as you type, mistakes about the configuration uh, mm -hmm. data. So I envision that things like that will happen in the near future mm. in, in, uh, in our programs. Mm -hmm. So you'd be able to write JavaScript, not TypeScript, mm. or Java with um, 
with uh, hash maps yeah. or Clojure or Python or whatever, and without having to to bind your types to your to your code, mm. like new Python encourages or like TypeScript, mm. you'd be able to somehow express it mm. via JSON schema or another language, mm. and the idea will be smart enough to give you um, error and feedback as you type. And then it's yeah. what I call you have the the cake and you have cut it yes. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, find, I find this I find it super interesting because we're, we're obviously we're, to, we're, in, we're in the world of dynamic languages here, right? And obviously there's a whole different set of functional programming languages that are statically typed. The sort of Haskells of this world, the TypeScripts in the end now, I guess. Um, and they're all trying to solve similar problems, but they're solving it in very, very different ways. Um, what, what is it you think about data-oriented programming in particular that, that gives you something extra that gives you something different over it, having it gives you the time. I think it gives you the the freedom mm. uh, because even in TypeScript when you want to write a generic function it's it's difficult mm. TypeScript you are, you have to work against TypeScript it, I I try to to use a library like Lodash in mm. TypeScript and for most of the functions it, it works but for some of them the types are too dynamic that you have to tell them, okay, you, you know what, it's an any type, don't, mm -hmm. don't, don't care, mm -hmm. I don't care. And uh, so back to what you said about the tiny types mm -hmm. and the big types, mm -hmm. I think that we want uh, the ability to have, um, when you have low level pieces of data that are generic, to have the ability to say, I don't mind. Mm -hmm. I don't want the compiler to to bother me and I don't have to do things like that <laughs> in order to convince the type system that it's okay here. Yeah, yeah. I want to decide. Mm. And for the big things, for the high level business entities where there are no surprises, mm. uh, you want uh, validation, but you want also the ability to, to deal with surprises or nullability, which I'm not sure that TypeScript or, or Java mm. are, 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 are yet mm. there. Uh, but but I think both communities have to learn one from each other instead of fighting and say types are good types are bad this is, we are better you are better no we we there is a, a sweet spot in the middle mm. and I've uh, been in touch with the James Clark from mm. Ballerina mm. and Ballerina is an interesting uh, language mm. that leverages something called um, flexible type system which tries to bring the best from both worlds. It's not static, it's not dynamic, mm. it's somewhere in the middle. Mm. Yeah. And James g gave me this great analogy uh, that types are not maps, mm. they are glasses through which you look at reality. Mm. But the reality is untyped. You, and sometimes you could look at the same reality with pink glasses or with blue glasses. Mm. Mm. And it's the same reality. Mm. So back to your example, you have a hash map, mm. and from my perspective, it's a user with just a first name and a last name. So that's my glasses. Mm. And from your perspective, it's a user with first name, last name, full name, and address. But the reality is the same. Mm. It's just you, you change glasses. And I think that traditionally, languages, static type systems tend to confuse maps with reality. And you superimpose your mental thinking of the reality, and you consider it as the reality, and that's the source of suffering. Mm. That's uh, well, 
who is it, James? James Clark. James Clark. So thank you, James. I'm going to steal that. Uh, that's, that's totally going into my into my into my toolkit for explaining stuff. Um, that's that's brilliant. Um, so, so we we talked about the well, the first two and then the fourth mm -hmm. principle. So we said we come back to the third principle. Yes. So, so what, the third, the what I think is the the easiest one to convince it's immutability, and I think every experience mm. developer, no matter if you are from Java or mm. C or JavaScript or would agree that immutability is, is a value. If you yeah. can afford it, it's better. Yeah. What's the problem? The problem is performance. And because when we say immutability, we, we, mean, we don't mean things that never change. We mean managing changes in an immutable way. And what does it mean? It means, let's say we have a, a cart mm. with two items. Mm -hmm. And we represent this cart as a piece of data, and now the user adds a third item. So managing it in an immutable way would be to create a new cart mm -hmm. with the third item. And now we have two carts, mm -hmm. one with two and one with three. And then the user another one with four or five. Yeah. So do we have, a, we have two potential problems, a memory problem, because we could have millions of carts, mm -hmm. and a um, computational problem, because each time we create a new cart, we have to kind of deep clone the previous card. Mm. So it takes time. Yeah. So that was the, until 2009, that was the, the biggest problem with uh, immutable data. But still, in many cases, performance is not really a problem because your data is not uh, as big as you might mm. think. If you have a card with 10 items, up to 100 items, yeah, yeah. it won't be a problem to deep clone. Mm. But when it gets to, I don't know, thousands of items, and in the book, I use the example of a library catalog, mm. which could have millions of yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. And now you, have, you add another book. So since the event of closure in 2009, we have persistent data structures, mm. which is an efficient implementation of managing chains. Mm. I won't go into the details because I want you guys to read the book, but <laughs> I give you just a, a hint. It's very similar to what Git does. Yeah. In Git, you have this magic that you can create a new commit and it's fast as light, but the whole history is available. Mm. And when you create a new commit and you push it, you don't have to a replica of the whole uh, mm. database, right? Yeah. You, and you don't have deltas. It, it works in a different way. It's mm. called uh, structural sharing. Mm. And persistent data structures leverage it in a very smart way. Mm. And it's smart in the sense that, like in Git, as a developer, you don't need to really understand yeah. the, the, the technical detail. Mm. So it just uh, works. And it allows, and since 2009, those persistent data structures, sometimes we call them H-A-M-T, hash array mapped tries, mm. T-R-I-E-S, have been ported to virtually any programming language. Facebook ported them to JavaScript, ah, with immutable yeah. JS. It has been ported to Scala. Mm to Python, to C++, to Ruby, mm. to Erlang, to whatever. So it's, uh, we have no reason to tolerate the data mutation. Mm. And I will just mention, it's another way to tame the state. Mm. Because if data is immutable, we have less state to care about. Mm. Mm. So that's principle number three to keep data immutable. Mm. Cool. Um, well, I mean, it's, it sounds super interesting. I mean, my, my, my background is in uh, yeah, distributed systems, that, that kind of thing. And one of the things that I sort of, that really attracted me about 
distributed systems was that it was another way of managing complexity, right? right. So, um, you know, when faced with a big problem, chop it up into lots of really small problems and solve the small problems. You know, right. Sam Newman, uh, a, a good friend of mine, uh, author of Building Microservices, he, he sort of says that quite a lot. Um, and that, that was one way I sort of settled on in, in the OO world of, of, of solving the problem of having big things that were really complicated and complex um, with lots of accidental complexity. It's to, it's to take those things and break it up into smaller bits. Um, this is obviously a different approach to, to trying to tackle yes. the same problem, the sort of cognitive overloads you get when you're trying to think about these these large code bases and trying to work with them and so on. Um, I mean, there's one thing that always, and maybe this is a, maybe this is a bit mean, I don't know, but one thing that always, that I always struggled with with closure, and I think it's because I'm stupid. I think no. it's what, I think that's why, um, is I'm, like more so than any other language I've, I've, I've ever written, maybe barring maybe barring Fortran 77 back in university. <laughs> um, uh, when I came back to Clojure after I'd written it and looked at what I'd written, it was the one, it was the language I find most difficult to understand the code that I myself uh -huh. had written. Does that make sense? It's kind of, it's almost, it's almost like I would, I would, I'd write some Clojure and I'd solve a problem in a really elegant, mm -hmm. beautiful way in a really small number of lines yes. of code. And then I'd come back a week later, and I would have no idea what it oh, did. I, I think, you know I mean? yeah, I, I does, think, does that kind of resonate? Yes, yes a, I think I had the same kind of thing when I discovered the functional programming mm. and the power of anonymous functions. Mm. And I would write a whole data pipeline with uh, ten lines of anonymous functions that made me feel very smart. Yes, right. But that nobody could read. Yeah. <laughs> and it took me a while to discover that the the probably the better way to write it is to to give name to each step mm. and to give name to, to the function and to call them one after the other. Mm. So it might be less elegant, mm. it might be a little bit more verbose, but it's, uh, I think it's much more readable for other people or for other versions of yes. myself. <laughs> exactly, future versions of myself. Future version yeah, of yeah. myself. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Immutable yeah. version of <laughs> myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in fact, in data-oriented programming, the interesting thing about it is that you don't have to leave your... Uh, your zone of comfort mm. in terms of mm. Mm. the way your habits, the way you write code, mm. the way you encapsulate uh, your favorite modules. language. Your, yeah, yeah, favorite yeah, language. Yeah. It's it's a different way to to represent your uh, your data, mm. and if you take into account the principle number four about mm. schema mm. and data validation, exactly. and don't go mm. the too much into the wild, that I don't think you will have this uh, uh, this this problem. You will write code in a way that is should feel mm. familiar to you to yourself, mm. Mm. and ho hopefully you'll have less bugs. Mm. Or when you have a bug, it will, or when you want to add a new feature, it will take less headache to mm. figure out um, what's what's going on. You you won't have to to understand the whole system in order to just uh, modify a bit the functionality of a s small part of, of the system. So, so what I'm hearing is um, we should buy the book because it will teach us how to write code that's going to 
better able us to add new features and modify existing codes more easily. Uh, we'll hopefully have fewer bugs. These are big promises. Um, I'm certainly gonna, gonna take a look at, uh, at your book. It sounds super, super interesting. Um, but thank, thank you very much. I think we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll call it a day here. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you. you very much for, for, for coming to the, the GoTo Book Club. It's Perfect. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech to discover lots more content from the brightest minds in software development.